Welcome to WADA, ADA Live Talk Radio, brought to you by Southeast ADA Center, your leader for information, training, and guidance on the Americans with Disabilities Act. And here's your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to WADA ADA Live. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, welcome to Episode 60 of ADA Live. Hello, my name's Peter Blank. I'm chairman of the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University and a university professor at Syracuse. Historically, people with cognitive disabilities have been placed under legal guardianship regimes, often losing their right to make their own decisions about life issues such as where to live and whether to work, marry, or receive health care. Supported decision-making, also known as SDM, by contrast, offers an opportunity for many adults with different types of disabilities to make their own decisions consistent with fundamental human and legal rights and an emerging international consensus. Before we begin, as a reminder, ADA Live listening audience, you can submit your questions about community living and policy at any time at adalive.org. That's adalive.org. It's my pleasure now to introduce today's guest, Jonathan Martinez. Jonathan is the Senior Director of Law and Policy at the Burton Blatt Institute. He's a nationally and internationally recognized expert on SDM, supported decision-making. He has over 20 years of experience representing, counseling, and advocating for people with disabilities to ensure that they receive the services and supports they need and want to live full, meaningful, and community-integrated lives the maximum extent possible. Welcome, Jonathan. Hello, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. During today's broadcast, Jonathan, we will be discussing many of the recent court cases where you were involved and others in which the rights of persons with disabilities were restored using SDM and supported decision-making teams and agreements were established. It's a pleasure to be with you today, Jonathan. And you, Peter. Jonathan, uh, there have been several important recent court cases regarding individuals with disabilities, cognitive and other disabilities, whose rights have been restricted, but then they were restored when a supported decision-making framework or agreement was introduced. A great one to start with is the case which has received national acclaim in which you were counsel, and that is the well-known Margaret Jenny Hatch case. Perhaps you can tell me and our listeners about the background of this case and why it is considered such a landmark advancement. I'd be happy to, but I have to warn you to uh, please stop me if uh, it's time to ask another question, because I can talk about this case all day. Um, As background, uh, for those of you who may be unfamiliar with supported decision-making, Um, 
if you ask yourself what is supported decision-making or if you ask me that question, the answer I have is this. How do you make decisions? Everyone out there, everyone listening to my voice makes decisions in the same way. Uh, you have people in your lives you ask for advice. You do research. You consider your options. You have people you go to. You probably have someone in your life you go to for advice on relationships or advice on money or, on, like me, on car repairs. When you're doing that, you're getting information that you need to make the decisions you need to make. That's supported decision-making. The interesting thing about supported decision-making is that it shouldn't even need a name. It should just be supported decision-making, decision-making, pardon me, because it's how we all do it. It's only people with disabilities who wind up needing the label like supported decision-making, and Jenny is a perfect example. Um, Peter, think about for a moment the, the things in your life that are the most important to you, the things that you can do during your day that you can choose, you can decide what to do, you can decide who you want to spend time with, you can decide where to go, you've already decided where you live and where you work. Those are really basic rights uh, that we all have, and that Jenny had them too for the first 29 years of her life. And then one day she walked into a courtroom and three hours later she had none of them. Because in just three hours she was placed under a guardianship where all of her rights were taken away where the people who were assigned to be her guardians now had the power to decide where she lived, whether she got health care, where she worked. She wasn't allowed to go back to her job. Where she went to church, she wanted to go to her church and was told, no, the people in our group home go to this other church. So Jenny had all the rights you have, Peter, and then she lost all of them in just three hours. When we went to court for Jenny, and I say we because Peter was my, my chief uh, expert witness, and thank God for it, we talked about Jenny using supported decision-making, just like we all do. You see, Jenny had people in her life just like we do. She had people in her life that helped her understand the decisions she had to make. For example, when she signed a power of attorney when she turned 18, she worked with a lawyer, and everyone agreed that that lawyer helped explain things to her so she could understand the document. When she needed surgery, she spoke with her doctor and with her friends because at first she was afraid to have the surgery. But when she got information, she agreed to the surgery when she had to do her person-centered plan. Everyone agreed that she worked with her case manager to help her understand the plan so she could sign and agree with it. So Jenny made decisions like you do, like we do, like we all do. She's a person with a disability, so maybe she needed a little bit different support than you need. Maybe she needed a little bit more support, but the principle was the same. Well, after a, a year and after six days of trial, um, a judge in a small courtroom in Newport News, Virginia, became the first trial court to say that Jenny, because she uses supported decision-making, doesn't need a guardian for the rest of her life that she should work with the people in her life so that she can continue to do what she had done her whole life and what you and I do. And since then, Jenny has been free. Once again, she can decide where to live, where to go, what to do, who to see, where she works, where she goes to church, just like everyone else. And um, her case has gotten a lot of attention. I'm glad it has because it's made people consider what decision-making is. 
and that we all need support. And as a result of that, we've really seen a growth in not just the number of people who use it, but the people who say they want to use it and people who recognize that they already use it. And it's become um, what I hope is uh, an avalanche. I've always called Jenny the rock that starts the avalanche. And for the past five years, that avalanche has been going and helping a lot of people. How is Jenny doing today, Jonathan? I speak with her a couple of times a week. Um, she's doing just fine. Um, she is, um, once again, making. she is not under any kind of guardianship. She makes her own decisions. Um, she still gets help to do it. I'm very honored to call myself one of the people who supports her. But um, Jenny is Jenny. Uh, I call her the world's most petite giant, and she continues to be. And what have been some of the more than ripple effects that you've seen in your travels across the country? Are people talking about the Jenny Hatch case? It's not just talking about the case, and it would be great if they were just talking about it because it would raise awareness, but they're doing something about it. Um, in just the four years since Jenny's decision, we've seen several states pass laws that include and mention and encourage and enable supported decision-making. We have seen the federal government fund the National Resource Center for Supported Decision-Making that you and I are involved in and other supported decision-making projects. We've seen states take on large task force activities to try to figure out ways to incorporate supported decision-making, not just as an alternative to guardianship, it is an alternative to guardianship, but not just that, but as a way to make the services and supports that people use better. Um, we've seen supported decision-making be advocated to be part of special education and vocational rehabilitation and uh, person-centered planning. So um, you called it ripple effects. I would call them tsunamis. It's, uh, it's still going. But um, I'm, I'm just amazed to uh, and, and so honored to have been a, proud, uh, a part of it. So I'm an advocate, as you know, Jonathan, and a social scientist. Uh, outside of the advocacy realm, what still needs to be done on the research side to perhaps provide evidence-based uh, information for policymakers and law change uh, in the coming years? Well, there's things going on already, but I'll tell you as a non-researcher um, what I think is needed and why. Um, one thing I've learned in working with you, Peter, is, is the concept uh, in research and practice of self-determination. Self-determination is another word that people never think about if they have it. If you're a person without disabilities, you never consider self-determination. What it is, is it's the, the authority, the power to make decisions for yourself. People are self-determined when they make their own decisions, when they make their own choices, when they chart their own course. When you are the captain of your ship, you are self-determined. And again, people without disabilities never think about that because we assume that we can do that. Well, for people with disabilities who often lose their rights under guardianship, self-determination is a big deal. And we have 40 years of studies, going back to the 70s, 40 years worth of studies, showing that when people are more self-determined, when people with disabilities have more self-determination, they have better lives, demonstrably better lives. Study after study after study have shown that when people with disabilities have more self-determination, they're more likely to be independent, employed, integrated into their communities, healthier, safer, etc. So in my mind, if we were able to, through research, show that 
people who use supported decision-making have more self-determination than those who don't and who are in guardianship, we would be able to show a direct link between supported decision-making and improved lives for people with disabilities. Um, it's, it's, as a non-researcher, it's commonsensical to me because you would say, if I make my own decisions using supported decision-making as opposed to having someone make them for me under a guardianship, I must have more control over my life and therefore must be more self-determined. And that's a, an easy thing to say. But what we need is, is empirical evidence that shows that it's true. And I'm proud to be part of a couple of organizations that are collecting that data. We are uh, doing research with partners across the country uh, using empirical, recognized, evidence-based tools to make that uh, determination, whether or not people who use supported decision-making are, in fact, more self-determined. Uh, when and if we can do that, I, I think uh, the avalanche will grow even more. And how are you getting this word out to rural America or, or areas of the United States which perhaps um, have less immediate access to advocates like yourself? Well, I travel, I travel a lot. <laughs> so um, I, I can tell you there have been trips where I've gone from speaking in San Francisco one day to Festus, Missouri the next. Um, I literally just got back from Columbia, Missouri. Prior to that, I was in um, Florida. I've been in Wyoming. I've been in four cities in Idaho just in the last month. Um, the way to get the word out, Peter, is to get the word out. I think the most important thing we can do, and I say this with respect to you as a researcher, but I think the most important thing we can do is to focus on people. Um, research is terribly important, but if the people who have to use supported decision-making. The people with disabilities, their family members, professionals like teachers and healthcare workers and, and case managers, if they're not aware of what supported decision-making is and how it can benefit people, then all the research in the world is less important because at the end of the day, the people who have to use it, who, who should want to use it because it can make lives better, need to know about it. And that's a lot of what I do. Uh, I had 2,000 teachers in front of me in Tennessee not that long ago talking about, and I was talking to them about um, using supported decision-making for kids in special education. I have spoken with vocational rehabilitation counselors, Medicaid waiver professionals. I've spoken with professional guardians in Missouri. I spoke, with the, I spoke at the uh, state conference for their, their public guardians all about these topics. People need to know how supported decision-making fits into their lives. It's not just a, a, a theory. It's not just a construct or a research question. It lives and it breathes, and it can make people's lives better, the people that we live with, love, and work with every day. Now, I know the answer to this question, but why aren't you working on a book so you'll get on the Oprah show and um, have a book that's relevant and easily accessible and written in that way for parents and providers? Well, I wouldn't do very well on the Oprah show because I have bad knees and could not jump on a couch. <laughs> but um, beyond that, uh, as you know, we are writing a book, um, more than one actually. Um, I'm honored to be a co-writer with Peter and two other uh, researchers, uh, Michael Wehmeyer and Carrie Shogren to be writing the first textbook 
uh, on supported decision-making, one that's going to talk about supported decision-making from a research angle and from an implementation angle. And that one's due out in January. And with Peter, I'm incredibly excited to be writing the first theory to practice guide for supported decision-making, a book that will also, we anticipate, be published in January from the uh, American Association, uh, the AAIDD is the initials. And this one is doing what I talked about that excites me. It's aimed directly at people who use or who will need to use supported decision-making. Um, it's written in user-friendly language, I hope, that gives practical advice and practical tips and strategies for incorporating supported decision-making into your life, everything from pre-K to end-of-life planning, ways that we can increase self-determination and improve people's controls over their life using SDM. Um, now, before we get to some other cases, which I want to talk about with you, uh, what's what's Jenny's life going to look like five years from now as this whole new paradigm hopefully plays out? You know, I really hope Jenny's life looks like it does now, looks like it always has, except for the year she was under guardianship. Um, you know, um, I hope that she is free to make her own decisions. I hope that she has people in her life, as she does now, to help her make those decisions. Uh, my pipe dream would be that supported decision-making is recognized by funding entities like Medicaid waivers or vocational rehabilitation uh, as ways to make their systems work. So that, for example, under a Medicaid waiver, if there is a person like Jenny who might need some assistance with decision-making in various areas of her life, she could get access to that support or education to help her access that support as uh, through a Medicaid waiver. I mean, the whole point of a Medicaid waiver is to help people be more independent, to help people live in their communities and help people succeed and be included in their communities. I mean, if the only purpose of a Medicaid waiver was to help people get out of institutions so they could go into a group home and never do anything, there's no point to it. But if the point of a Medicaid waiver is to help people be part of their communities, then supported decision-making should be a key part of it because people who may not have had choices before or may not have been aware that they had choices or that they could make choices, and unfortunately that's a lot of people with disabilities, um, can now have the access they need to the things they need to make it happen. And that's what I'd hope not just for Jenny, but for you know the millions of other Jennies who are out there who may not know about this, who may now be in guardianship but don't need it, who may be facing a guardianship they don't need. And it's worth mentioning now, I think I should caveat, that I'm not here to say there should never be a guardianship. I never say there should never be a guardianship. What I say is that people who don't need guardianships, like Jenny, or who don't need full guardianships, just need partial guardianships, but get full guardianships. Those folks, they don't need the guardianships they're in, or they don't need guardianship in general. We call those, Peter, I know you know this, overbroad or undue guardianship. That's what I'm against, and that's what supported decision-making can help finally, I hope, bring to an end. That's my other dream. You know, it's a good segue into another question I had for you, and I, again, I know the answer. It's important, as you and I both know, not to cast this paradigm shift or debate as parents versus uh, children or providers versus the people they provide services for. Uh, it might be helpful if you articulate why this is a, 
move towards a more collaborative discussion and not an adversarial relationship. Oh Lord, yeah, because um, you know, I, I again I travel around the country, and I think I can say without fear of being contradicted that very, 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 very few people are seeking guardianship to hurt a loved one. There are very few mustache-twirling villains out there trying to take away rights intentionally from people with disabilities. No, the typical person seeking guardianship is a parent or a family member or a close friend who, who wants to help, who wants to provide assistance and protection. Even in Jenny's case, the psychologist who, te- who testified for the people seeking guardianship said that what would be the best for Jenny would be surrounded by people who care for her, to support her and give her the assistance that she needs. I love that line. It's one I talk to parents about all the time. That's what supported decision-making is. It's not a parent versus a child. It's a parent and a child working together. That's what every parent does. I mean, the first job of every parent is to protect their child. But right with that one is the obligation of every parent to prepare their child as much as possible for adulthood. Because someday the parent is not going to be there. This is the first generation of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities that is outliving their parents. There's going to come a day, by and large, when the parent's not going to be there. The parent, just like they should for the children without disabilities, should be helping that child prepare for that day. And a way to do that is to work together to develop the strategies and skills that person needs to make their way in the world, to make the decisions they have to make, to get the help they have to get. And again, I emphasize that's what we do. That's what our parents did for us. They got us ready. They told us what to look out for and what to look for. They told us they gave us advice on how to make decisions and how to make the best possible choices in our lives. Sometimes we followed them, sometimes we didn't. We can do the same thing for people with disabilities. It might be a little bit a different shape. It might be a little bit of different intensity, but the idea flows through. We should be working together on this, not going in separate directions. Now, you've told us about Jenny's case, which, case, which was landmark, of course, the first in the United States, but you quickly followed that up with another first in the United States, uh, the first time in the District of Columbia that uh, SDM was acknowledged by a court. That case involved uh, a man named Ryan King. I think our listeners would be very interested in hearing about that case and how it built on the prior case. And it actually built on what we just talked about, because Ryan's case is a perfect example of parent and child working together. You see, Ryan's parents, who were his guardians, never wanted to be. Um, When Ryan turned 18, uh, 18 years ago, the District of Columbia government at the time, the the Developmental Disabilities Administration at the time, told uh, Ryan's parents that if they wanted him to get services, they had to be their guardian, his guardian. The parents argued, we don't want to be Ryan's guardian. We want Ryan to be as independent as possible. We've always talked to Ryan about making his own decisions. And then the uh, government said again, if you want services, you have to be his guardian. So what's a parent to do? They did what they had to. They became his guardians. About seven years later, they went back to the court, and they said, we don't want to be Ryan's guardians. He makes his own decisions. We help him when he needs help, but we want him to be independent. And they, rather presciently, said, 
We think we might die before he does, and we don't want a stranger over him. So they asked the court to remove the guardianship and maybe try a power of attorney, and the judge declined. The judge said, we can, I can always appoint another guardian. So what's a parent to do? They stayed his guardian. Uh, Jenny's case happened. It got a fair amount of national attention. They heard about it. And they said to themselves, this is what we do. They didn't call it supported decision-making because, frankly, no one should. It's just life. They had a life where they supported each other. They worked together to make decisions. So they found me. And we spent uh, a good long time documenting all of the decisions Ryan makes and how he makes them. I actually had a, a psychologist follow Ryan around for the day to watch him at work interacting with people and making decisions, taking his paycheck to the bank where he went to the bank to cash his checks specifically so he could make budgeting decisions, watched him pick out his meals and cook his dinner with the support of his family, manage his medication and manage his life. And the psychologist said, yes, this young man is doing it. It's, it's, he's living this life with the incredible support of his parents. So we went back to court. And we were worried um, because uh, I can tell you as a lawyer, judges don't like being told they're wrong. They especially don't like being told they were wrong twice. So we went and we told the judge that Ryan would sign a power of attorney. We even drafted it up. And we said, you know, Judge, if you'll get rid of this guardianship, Ryan will sign this power of attorney right here in front of you, and it's going to give you that protection that you were worried about. He will say, if something happens to me, I want mom and dad and my sister to make decisions for me. But in the meantime, I'd like them to make decisions with me. You know, we'll work together, supported decision-making, using medical care and financial decisions. So we went through the whole hearing, and then the judge looked at Ryan, not me, looked at Ryan, and said, Ryan, your, your attorney says you'll sign this power of attorney uh, if I terminate the guardianship. And Ryan said, yes, sir, I will. And then the judge said, well, you can do that if you want. It's your decision. I'm terminating the guardianship. It's your life. And just like that, Ryan King, who had been under guardianship for, at the time, I think 16 years, was free. He became a citizen again. Just like that. Rights that you never thought about he had. He could decide what he wanted to do. Now, people say to me, well, what's the difference? He was already making his own decisions. The difference is now he had the right to do it. He's a citizen, and it matters. I have a picture of Ryan that I show when I do presentations, signing the power of attorney when he signed it. And the smile on his face says, I know exactly what I lost, and I know what I've gotten back. And now Ryan, too, has spoken about supported decision-making. He's appeared before an American Bar Association panel along with his mom, uh, we spoke out in California at the Sachs Institute all about this exact issue, um, that people can work together. He and his mom and his dad, they worked together, and his sister, they worked together. It wasn't, in fact, you know, even though the case was theoretically Ryan against his parents because they were his guardians, they were all on the same side. There was never any doubt what the parents wanted. There was never any doubt what the family wanted. And working together, Ryan got his rights back pretty beautiful thing and the tsunami effects of ryan uh in dc uh we certainly have a work group um that is and dc has passed uh, a law on supported decision making in fact uh, uh quality trust for individuals with disabilities our uh, partner in the national resource center for supported decision making played a key and a leading role in that I uh, can't say enough good things about people like Tina Campanella and Morgan Whitlatch, who really have been advocates from the very beginning uh, for choice and for opportunities and inclusion. 
and um, people with disabilities like Selma Green and others who said, we do this. This is our life. We may need support, but it, you know, just needing help to do something doesn't mean you can't do it. Think about, again, in your life, Peter, the times you have asked for advice. The time, when you've asked a doctor to explain a diagnosis, the doctor didn't assume that you were incapable of managing your medical cares, just assumed that you needed help. People without disabilities, people with disabilities don't get that benefit of the doubt. By and large, people still assume when they ask for help that they can't do things. And people like Ryan and Jenny and Thelma and so many others are leading the way to show that's just not true, that we can all manage our lives. Or if we can, we ought to be given the opportunity to manage our lives. Once again, ADA Live listening audience, if you have questions about SDM, supported decision-making, or any of our other ADA Live topics, you please can submit them at any time to our online forum at adalive.org. I want to pause for a moment now for a word from our sponsor, the National Resource Center for Supported Decision-Making, or the NRC-SDM. The National Resource Center for Supported Decision-Making, NRC-SDM, builds on and extends the work of Quality Trust Jenny Hatch Justice Project by bringing together vast and varied partners to ensure that input is obtained from all relevant stakeholder groups, including older adults, people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, family members, advocates, professionals, and providers. The NRC-SDM partners bring nationally recognized expertise and leadership on SDM, representing the interests of and receiving input from thousands of older Americans and people with intellectual disabilities. They've applied SDM in groundbreaking legal cases, developed evidence-based outcome measures, successfully advocated for changes in law, policy, and practice to increase self-determination and demonstrated SDM to be a valid, less restrictive alternative to guardianship. Find out more by going to their website at www.supporteddecisionmaking.org. Hi again. We're back to our show. We're talking with Jonathan Martinez, who is the legal director at the Burton Blatt Institute, and his groundbreaking work on SDM and supported decision-making, uh, some of the recent cases he was involved with, and the now national and international implications for change with regard to guardianship law and emergence of the paradigm of supported decision-making. Jonathan, we've been talking about uh, Jenny Hatch's case and Ryan King's case, and I know there's another case uh, that you've been involved with, a woman named Miss Heck, Suzanne Heck, uh, perhaps tell us about the process that you were involved with to restore her rights and the implications of this particular case. I was about as uninvolved in Susie Heck's case as a person can be and have any involvement. The, the, the work in that case is really credited to the attorney she worked with, to the Kentucky Protection and Advocacy System, and most of all to Susie Heck herself. But um, what I knew of Susie was this. Um, and else of what I've read, Susie's a young woman who, like Jenny, was under guardianship. In fact, she's been called both the Jackie Robinson and the Jenny Hatch of Kentucky. You see, like Ryan King, when Susie turned 18, she was placed under guardianship. And as she got older, 
she realized that she's able to do all these things and wanted to do all these things. So she, with her family's support, again, like Ryan King, contacted uh, the Kentucky Protection and Advocacy System and worked with a friend of mine named Camille Collins to set up um, essentially a petition asking her to have the guardianship removed. She worked with a psychologist and with a team um, to show all the decisions she makes and how she makes them and how she can do it with support. And at first, um, in Kentucky, it was opposed. Um, in the Kentucky system, uh, because she was held, she was under guardianship by the public guardian, the county attorney opposed removing the guardianship. So Ms. Collins said, let's get an attorney appointed and let's have a hearing on this. Well, where I heard about Susie um, was I was doing a training for the Kentucky Protection and Advocacy System staff and uh, some other folks from the, the University Center on Excellence in Developmental Disabilities on supported decision-making and on putting supported decision-making supports and services in place. And after the call, they were talking to me about uh, Susie's case, and I forwarded some materials. Um, the interesting thing that, got, that, that was used in her case, although I don't think it was determinative, was Susie used a, a tool that, that I train on around the country called the Dream Board, um, which is a way for people, not just people with disabilities, but people, to communicate the choices they want to make, their goals and their objectives and their aspirations. And there's a great picture of Susie with her attorney and with one of her advocates holding up her dream board. And they were prepared to bring that into court to show, of course, Susie can play a lead role in deciding what kind of supports and services and what kind of life she has. Look, she already has a plan. This is what she wants to do, and these are the people that she works with to do it. So Susie was able to demonstrate that she makes her own decisions. And again, that's, that's not a triumph of any lawyer. That's a triumph of, of humans, like Ryan King, like Jenny Hatch. They didn't need to call it supported decision-making. They just called it life, like you and I did. But Susie showed that she's more than capable of living and directing her own life. And uh, everyone agreed. The county attorney who had previously opposed withdrew the opposition, and just like that, Susie Heck became the first person in Kentucky to have a guardianship terminated because of supported decision-making or because she uses supported decision-making. Um, just like that, she was. Uh, it's a shame she had to demonstrate what we all should assume, that people, uh, unless proven otherwise, can direct their own lives and make decisions if they get the support they need. But Susie did it, and there's a, it was a, a great article I read about her that she went out with a friend of hers and her, her friend's uh, supporter. And she said, you know, this is the first time I could think of where I was able to, to leave the house without a caregiver. And it was the first time that she ever had the right to choose how to spend her own money. The article talks about her wanting to buy a DVD copy of a movie called The Last Mimsy, which sounds like a nothing. It's probably a $5 purchase. But when she was under guardianship, her guardian would have had to okay that purchase. Um, I lectured in Kentucky once, uh, well before Susie's case, and I had a case manager come up to me and said that she works with a young man who uh, is perfectly capable of making his own choices, does it all the time, does his plan, uh, wants to get an earring, and his guardian said, no, we don't believe in earrings in this house. That's the difference, is that, you know, even when we mean well, a guardianship over a person who doesn't need one can intrude on the most basic rights, whether to buy a $5 movie or get an ear pierced. It's why I think supported decision-making can change the paradigm 
where we can start assuming that people can make decisions whether to get an earring or to date. In many states, a person under guardianship is not allowed to get married. In several states, the law says that a guardian has the same power over a person under guardianship as a parent does over a child. We have the ability to change that. We have the ability to say that people ought to start from a place where we assume they can do things instead of that they can't. And if they can't do things, truly can't, then guardianship's appropriate. But we shouldn't do that until, you know, Susie didn't suddenly gain skill. No more than Ryan or Jenny did. They had been doing it all their lives. Just people opened their eyes. People acknowledged their skill. We need to start from a place where just like for you and me, we assume that people have the skill to make their own decisions until proven otherwise, as opposed to uh, you're not allowed to make any decisions until you prove to me that you can. So what's your next case? What do you see? Hopefully you'll stay out of court for a while, but do you see any troubling issues down the road that are recurring that eventually may end up in litigation? Well, I always say the issue is cultural. Um, it's, you know, as, as a lawyer, of course, you always think about what kind of cases there are out there. There are real implications around guardianship for people with all kinds of disabilities, particularly you know, people with serious mental illness, uh, people who may have need additional support at certain times and not others, or people who are placed under guardianship uh, in the name of protection when there's no proof that it would protect. I, I see those, but I see the biggest problem and the problem that we're going to face for a long time, because we have faced it for a long time, is cultural. We still are in a place uh, in this world, not just this country, where we start from an assumption that people with disabilities can't do things and therefore need guardians. Um, I was part of a study a, a few years ago where we asked parents and we asked people when the first time they thought to get guardianship was or what their first cue was to get guardianship. And frankly, we expected it to be from lawyers or from family members, but no, it was from teachers. Uh, number one with a bullet was teachers and educational professionals. The first time a parent had been cued to get guardianship was a school telling a parent, don't you need to get guardianship or shouldn't you get guardianship? And that just reinforces that, that cultural issue because it makes me ask the question, um, if you're telling a parent to get a guardian at 18, what were you doing for the 15 years before that to try to build that student's skills? What have we all been doing? And um, in the District of Columbia, where, where I work, they have the first public school with the first um, policy incorporating supported decision-making into education. I think that can go a long way to defeat those cultural assumptions that people can't do things. So that's the biggest, quote-unquote, battle on the horizon, is we need to convince parents um, who mean well, who have never been told there's an option under guardianship, who are told they have to get guardianship, like they have to run to the courthouse tomorrow to take away their child's rights, that there are options. And that requires people talking about it. It requires the Susie Hex and the Ryan Kings and Jenny Hatches of the world to unfortunately have to keep proving that they can do that which we are assumed that we can do. But if we keep doing that, then slowly by surely, one person at a time, the culture changes and then the world changes. I know that's a cliche, but if one person at a time shows that supported decision-making is a real option, a working option, then maybe someone else is going to see that, just like Ryan saw it after Jenny's case. 
Maybe someone else will see it and try something else. Maybe a parent will say, I shouldn't have gotten guardianship. Not that they did anything wrong, but they didn't know, like you know, Ryan's parents did. Maybe a parent will reconsider seeking guardianship to at least try something else. In that way, one person at a time, one decision at a time, we shift the paradigm and we change the world. Well, that's fantastic, Jonathan. It's a, been a great discussion with you today. Thank you so much. Listeners, again, our guest has been Jonathan Martinez of the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University. Jonathan, thank you again for being with us today. This episode, and thank you, Jonathan. This episode and all the previous episodes uh, are available on our website at adalive.org. The episodes are archived in a variety of formats, including streamed audio from our website, accessible transcripts of audio, and also are available to download as podcasts to listen at your convenience. So thank you all again, ADA Live listening audience, for tuning in today. We're thankful for your support and listening in this series for ADA Live. Remember, you can submit any questions on any of these topics by going to adalive.org and join us on October 3rd, 2018, for our next episode of ADA Live, when our topic will be on the employment of people with disabilities, in particular celebration of National Disability Employment Awareness Month. If you have questions about the ADA, of course, contact your center at 1-800-949-4232 at any time. And remember, all these calls are free and they're confidential. Thanks again, Jonathan, and thank you all for listening. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you for listening to ADA Live Talk Radio. Brought to you by the Southeast ADA Center. Remember to join us the first Wednesday of each month for another ADA topic. And you can call 1-800-949-4232 for answers to your ADA questions.